Welcome to Theatrically Speaking, the very first playwriting podcast. My name is Jonah Knight. Season one is republishing the long-lost first episodes of the show from back in 2007. And season two begins the new episodes. Now, a few things have changed since 2007, like the website. For more information about Theatrically Speaking or my other podcasts, please visit actualstorypodcasting.com. Next, back in 2007, you could number your episodes however you like, and I did this very creative numbering system that included episodes 4.1, 4.15, 4.2, and no actual episode 4. The numbering that the episodes have in your feed is the order that you should listen to them. So, welcome in to the Theatrically Speaking Wayback Machine. It's time to talk some plays. I hate movies, I don't watch TV, I can't read books, and I don't take kids to the zoo. Video games are gonna rot your brain, and all these internets are for idiots. But I love you, baby, dear, but you ain't no Shakespeare. Try to make me to be high class, and I would David Bammon on your ass. Jonah, thank you for joining me on episode 4.3 of Theatrically Speaking, almost a playwriting podcast. This seems to be the episode that gets interrupted. Normally, on Wednesdays, I record between 1 and 3. I started recording this afternoon, and the neighbors had their lawn care service come out, and they made so much noise, I had to stop. Couldn't do it. So, waited to this evening, um, started, got almost through, there was a brownout power went out. So now it's going on nine o'clock Wednesday evening and I'm giving it a shot again and hopefully this time we'll keep the power and uh, and everything will go on. All right. Yeah. Okay. A couple of things to start with. Today, uh, uh, yesterday on the advice of Tina, I officially signed up for Google ads. Yes. You may every once in a while as you're doing your searches with Google, see a little ad for theatrically speaking. Um, I signed up Tuesday, I checked earlier today, and my ad has, according to Google, appeared uh, over 400 times. Of those 400 times, there was one click through. That's awesome, which means that so far, I have spent five cents on my Google ads. That's pretty cool, I guess. We'll see what happens. Uh, similar to that, recently, I've, uh, some of you guys have been very kind and have given me a very nice review on your blogs, very specifically Trey over at BrassRingWriting.com, Tina at ILikeSeaMonsters.com, and Joseph over, and I'm just going to spell this because I don't know how to quite pronounce it yet, but C-R-E-S-T-M-E-M-E dot blogspot.com. Uh, Crest Mimi, maybe, I don't know. Uh, anyway... These are, these are very nice reviews, and you guys are very kind, and I've got this little stat counter thing, and it's showing me that people are responding to your blogs, and they are joining us here. So if you are new, I'm kind of interested as to whether or not you are a listener now because of one of these blogs, or because you have found me out on Google Ads, or how you found me in general, um, perhaps at iTunes or Podcast Alley. And by the way, if you happen to be hanging around iTunes or Podcast Alley, stop by and write me a little review. Don't have any reviews yet. And actually, that's pretty sad. I think that is pretty sad. It sometimes makes me, um, I don't know. Anyway, I guess I'll get over that. 
and move on with my life and move on with this episode because in today's episode, we're going to continue our series on talking about specific writing elements and or techniques, considerations that you should have in mind when you are writing plays based on their length. We've already talked about the short play, we've talked about the one-act play, and now we are here talking about the full-length play and what should you have in mind. Well, let's just start with subject. You can do your your big heavy subject matter. You're going to write your big uh, in, indictment of the war. It's going to be a war play, and it's going to be powerful, and it's, everyone who disagrees with you is going to suck it because they're going to see your play, and they're going to know you're awesome. And you can do it because it's a full-length play. You've got an hour and a half. You've got two. You've got two and a half hours, something like that. You go more than two and a half hours. We might have a bathroom issue, but let's say you got a two-hour play. You can totally take whatever heavy subject matter. You do have some time here. You can develop it. You can, you can explore it. You can deal with all that heavy stuff, but you can also, much like Alan Akeborn, write your full-length plays as comedies. You can explore some goofy relationship stuff, um, you know, between lovers, between um spouses between uh, workplace people and all of that kind of stuff. And you can do that. So you can make it a big serious play. You can make it a comedy. But one thing that you should keep in mind as you are crafting together your story is subplot. Short plays probably don't, like seriously, I would, I would advise you not to have subplots in short plays. One act plays, depending on what you're doing, you could have one, a subplot, um, but you may not want to, just depending on what's going on. Full length play, you want to keep me engaged, you should have more than one line here. You should have one more than one storyline. Think about your subplots. Think about character development and all that kind of stuff. I think that's good. And when I think about subplots, all sorts of storylines interconnecting here, I tend to think about Angels in America. You think about Angels in America, and let's just take the uh, just one of the two plays there. Uh, as a single unit, either of those plays, they've got their main thing going on, you know, mostly. And then they've got all kinds of other stuff. they got the Mormon thing, and they got the AIDS thing, and they got the all this stuff is happening, and it's crazy. And, um, and, you're, and, it's, and it's powerful, you know? That thing can hold you. It can suck you in. So yeah, think about that. I mean, you've got your audience there for a good amount of time. Keep them engaged. Keep them thinking about something else. Yeah. Now you uh, you should also the, the careful thing there is to make sure that your subplots balance out. Um, now you might do a thing where what starts out as the main plot becomes a subplot. Uh, as long as you're very conscious and the way you're crafting your play, you can totally do that. That's cool. I dig it. One of the things that people talk about as a condition, as, as something that you should keep in mind as you're writing your play, cast size, cast size and characters. This is kind of, uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of split on this, actually, because the, the popular wisdom, the thing that is sort of uh, given out there to playwrights is that if you have a really large cast, chances are you won't get pr- this play produced as often as you would if it had a smaller cast. Yes and no. Yes and no. Let's take a look at two plays here as we talk about cast size. Um, let's take a look at The Foreigner. The Foreigner is a farce if you, uh, by Larry Shue, if you've not heard of this play. It is a pretty darn popular play. Cast size, and I, I keep meaning to look this up, it's like eight or nine, something like that. Um, good, good number of people in this play. And it gets produced a lot. It gets produced at high schools and colleges and community theaters and professional theaters and dinner theaters and summer stock theaters and all over the place. Um, I'm pretty sure that having like eight or nine actors 
didn't impede the success of this play. Now, if The Foreigner had 15 actors, quite possibly would impede the success of the play. Quite possibly. Now here's, so, instead of thinking of it as don't have a large cast, think of it this way. Make sure that every actor that you have serves a vital purpose in telling the story of your play. So, if you need to have Larry, his brother Daryl, and his other brother Daryl, and you need to have those three guys that are just kind of hanging around doing a thing, and it does, and having those three people serves an artistic vision, and it helps move the story forward, and it does a lot for your atmosphere and all this kind of thing, leave those three guys in. No reason to take them out. Um, well, someone may say there's a reason to take them out, but if, if they serve, if each of those three guys serves a vital component in the telling of your story, don't take them out just to take them out. But you might ask yourself, can I tell this story just as well with only one of those guys? Do I have to have three? You know, that kind of thing. Um, I would I would say that that's more important than a sort of vague goal of only have five actors or something like that. Uh, something that's uh, just as long as all the actors that are there are required. As we're going through On Island now, um, the rewrite that I did with On Island, one of now I, I will admit that... In a, in a rewrite recently, I had two actors that were very, that were one that was a pretty small role and another that was uh, the other smallest role. And I sort of combined them to be played by the same actor. Um, and, but that wasn't necessarily for cost for me. That was uh, ease of production, uh, which is also something to consider. So, uh, I can say that as a producer, I would not necessarily look at an eight-actor play and say, I just can't do it because there's eight actors. I-, I would say that probably with like a 15-actor play. But I wouldn't look at an eight-actor play and just throw it out. If it's something I really want to do, I'm going to find a way to do it. But there are, you know, so so when you look at your, your cost breakdown on your, on your, uh, your production... For us, anyway, and we're in a, we're in a, Frederick is a city of about 60,000 people, but we've got a bunch of suburbs here. We're pretty close to D.C., we're pretty close to Baltimore, so there's a lot of people in this area, and, and you may or may not know that D.C. is the, probably the third biggest theater town in the country, so there's a lot going on down there, and we have to pay competitive wages or we're not going to get good actors to come up here. So we do that, uh, and still, even though we're paying decent wages for our actors, um, it still is not the biggest thing on the cost breakdown. You know, uh, it's more expensive to rent space. Uh, uh, you know, it's more expensive to get all the tech together than to just pay another actor to help work on a show. If it's a show that we really want to do, we're going to do that show. So look at the other end of the spectrum. Let's take a look at Tally's Folly by Lanford Wilson. Uh, if you're not familiar with this play, two actors, one man, one woman. Uh, and, um, that's fine. I mean, just because there are... Two, and, you know, it plays won a bunch of awards, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's getting produced a heck of a lot more than The Foreigner. Uh, two actors over here, sure, you're saving money because you're not paying for the eight actors over here, but, you know, high schools, they're, they're, The Foreigner has a greater market. There are more people that want to produce The Foreigner because, I'll tell you what, they ain't doing Tally's Folly at your high school theater festival, you know, they're, they might do their, the, your, your drama club's probably going to do the foreigner at some point, but they're not going to do Tally's folly. So just because it's a small cast and a good play doesn't necessarily mean it's going to get produced more 
than a big act, uh, a big uh, cast play. So that's something to keep in mind. Another thing that people talk about is tech requirements. So, um, so what should you keep in mind there? Let's take a look at these same two plays, The Foreigner and Tally's Folly. Foreigner requires a good, decent set. Now, you can have no tech skills and make a crappy-looking set, but you're going to need some kind of a set. You need a door. You need a big window. You need some furniture. It's, the, it's like the lobby of a rustic uh, converted hotel, uh, mot- uh, you know, a lodge converted into a motel kind of thing. Um, I, I don't remember if it actually says that there are stairs to the upstairs uh, on the set. I think that there are. I've seen it with stairs on stage. I've seen it with stairs off stage. So... Um, pretty decent tech requirements for the foreigner still getting produced all over the place. Look at tech requirements for Tally's Folly. It's set on a dock, an outdoor area, but it doesn't really, the script itself and in the dialogue, it does not specify uh, a lot or very like any uh, tech uh, set requirements, that sort of thing. Yes, they're on a dock, but they don't say, well, let's go swimming now. And then they have, you know, five pages of dialogue while they're in the water. Um, uh, and I've seen this play. I've seen this play twice. One with a very minimal set and one with a hugely elaborate, gorgeous set. And I don't know. I don't know. Are the actors good? I mean, the actor, if the acting's good, the, you know, the play's tight. Uh, and again, award-winning play. Two actors, no tech requirements, and still the foreigner is going to get produced more often than Tally's Folly. I'm certain of it. So, so uh, again, when you're, when you're thinking about your tech, similar to thinking about your cast size. Do I need this tech, technical requirement to tell this story? If you absolutely need them to get in the water and do a water ballet in order to get the true artistic vision across, then I guess that's what you got to do. But if you don't need it, if you can get that story told without it, uh, I would highly encourage you to do that. Here's an example from my own writing. Uh, I've got this play called Take Stock. It's a play that I'm very proud of, that I like very much. It's a murder mystery, and it's good. Uh, it's gotten um, some interest. It, it had a, a developmental reading at the Kennedy Center a couple years ago. Never been fully produced, and in part, I am certain because of the techni- one specific technical requirement in this play. At one point, a character takes some documents and hides them behind, or I should say above, a ceiling tile. Uh, and through de- detective work, another character discovers clues that lead them into the ceiling. Okay, now they don't actually climb up into the ceiling, but they do get on a desk and pull documents out of the ceiling. And I love that. I think that's awesome, and I think that for an audience watching that unfold, it would be like a stunning kind of powerful moment for them. That's absolutely ridiculous. I don't know if you guys have any lighting design experience, but if you do, like the biggest thing that lighting designers will complain about is a set designer building a ceiling or a roof out over the stage. Because then what are the, how does the lighting designer design that? Where do they put their lights so that you can get light underneath a roof that you built out over the stage? Can't do it. And I'm certain, I'm certain, I, I know that this play has, has not been produced in part because of that. And at some point, I just have to kick myself and fix it. Because um, otherwise, it's just going to sit there and I'll say, but I like it and no one else is producing it. So something I just have to suck up and do one of these days. But it is something for you guys to keep in mind. No ceilings easy thing no ceilings all right 
what other elements to keep in mind? You need a beginning, middle, and an end. Yeah, has to spark off somewhere. Characters have to grow and evolve. They have to discover. They have to, they have to be active somewhere in the middle. And then it has to conclude in a certain way. Yeah, sounds kind of simple. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that it has to be linear. You can absolutely jump around. Uh, you can tell your story from any time perspective that you like. And a great example of that is How I Learned to Drive by Paula Vogel, which is not a linear play, has a beginning, middle, and an end, is very powerful, it's funny, it's poignant, it's, an, it's a great, great play. And, and the stuff that she does with time in there is just awesome. So uh, I would recommend you check that out if you're not familiar with How I Learned to Drive. Uh, there are some audio versions out there somewhere that I've come across, so you may be able to find that. Uh, other things to keep in mind... Um, Characters should be active and doing, and there's a difference between having your characters doing something and just giving them busy work. Here's another example of a play of mine that I am certain I will never finish. Uh, a one act titled Miss Bliss Missed This Kiss. Uh, and aside from uh, a, a, just a really bad title, the other thing going against this play is that, and I started thinking about this a long time ago, and I confused giving people something to do and something to pursue uh, versus giving them busy work. And in order to make this play visually interesting, I set it in a room that was being renovated. So as this one act, as this one act with great technical requirements unfolds, they are putting up like sheetrock and stuff like that. Um, I like the characters. I like their thing. Uh, certainly in this setting, it's never going to work. And I think that's what drove me away from it. Watch out for that. Uh, putting up sheetrock is not keeping your characters active. It's keeping them busy. And you don't want them busy. You want them active. You want them to be discovering who killed the guy, not putting up sheetrock. Learn from my mistakes, peoples. Okay, other things, a couple other things. Um, what about, let's talk about nudity, violence, profanity, that kind of thing. Okay, nudity. What about nudity in your play? Simulated sex and all that kind of thing. Okay, let's talk about two plays. Let's talk about Take Me Out. You may know Take Me Out. Um, it is the story about that gay baseball player, and you probably heard about it because there was that scene where like all the guys got naked on stage, and then they all took a shower because they're in baseball, and that's what baseball players do is they all get naked and take a shower. Um, and that, uh, so I saw this play, uh, I saw it down in D.C., good production of the play. Eh, eh, play, eh, play. I mean, sure, there's a bunch of naked guys, and yeah, there's there's water coming out, and they're sure taking a shower. Yep, they're using soap. Okay, and this uh, propels the plot forward. How? I don't know. Um, much, much hoopla, uh, unwarranted, I, in my opinion, about Take Me Out. Um, eh, eh, play. Kind of an air play. Anyway, the fact that there were a bunch of naked guys on stage taking a shower, I believe, has actually led to more productions of that play, not fewer. Now, it certainly isn't getting produced in Kansas anytime soon, because that's just the way Kansas is. They're afraid of the butt talks. Uh, but I believe that in, in hubs, in cities, it has gotten more productions, because people want to go take a look at a bunch of guys naked taking a shower. I think, you know, you know you do. You know you do. Hasn't hurt that play. 
Take a look at the full Monty. Uh, you may say, oh, but the full Monty, it's kind of funny, and they're singing, and they're doing the thing, and people want to see that at dinner theater, so they're not going to be naked in a dinner theater. No, no, no. So some productions have um, not shown the full Monty on stage, even though they're doing the play. Get that? Get that? It's kind of funny, witty? Yeah. Um, so, so, however, uh, a friend of mine right now, this weekend, he is closing a production of The Full Monty up in Cumberland, Maryland. Cumberland is farm country. Uh, farm country, you got your manufacturing, you got your cattle and your wheat. And then they're going to go to the theater to see you play. And well, in that production, they're naked. They got the junk hanging out, baby. Um, so, I, I, I don't know. I, I think, so what I would say is that if the nudity is important to the play... And you know what I mean. It could be important to the play. In Full Monty, that's the whole point. Um, don't necessarily take it out, but, you know, going back to the character thing, going back to the tech thing, is this required to tell this story well? And if it is, you put that sucker in there. Same thing with the profanity. I would say that uh, if you're aiming for the breadbasket and if you want to be produced all over the place much like the foreigner you perhaps would not want uh your characters swearing their heads off all the time however let's take a look at the career of david mamet who who pretty much would have no play at all if he did not have some profanity uh he'd have he'd have nothing he'd got nothing nothing uh so I would say that he's a good example. David Mamet's whole career is a good example of how you can swear your head off and still get produced all over the places. All over the places. Uh, yeah. Um, violence. Yeah, you can do that too. If violence is absolutely required for your play. Um, I would say that there, though, again, going back to is this required to tell this story? I would, my suggestion there, and of course, if your play requires something different, you do something different, but my take on that has been, try to give the production team a little bit of freedom in the way that you craft your violence, so that if this is going to be an edgy theater, if this is going to be like uh, the Maryland Ensemble Theater here in Frederick, Maryland, producing your play, and they want that, you know, the collision of the baseball bat against the guy's head, and they want to do that right, you know, downstage center, they can do it, but maybe craft the play so that if it's a little more of a timid uh, audience, they might be able to do some of that off stage. they might be able to do it in such a way that isn't as graphic, so maybe tempering these, these very extreme moments or giving the production staff that ability might go a ways to helping you get some shows done. But uh, but that doesn't mean that you should have no violence at all just because somebody out there is squeamish. You know? You dig it? You with me on that? Yeah, that's cool. Um, so those are some kind of thoughts. Uh, that's what I've been thinking about uh, as far as full-length plays go. Now, I do want to take a little bit here and and talk just a bit. Um, I, was, uh, I don't know. Is this episode 1.16? I hate movies, I don't watch TV, I can't read books, and I don't take Perhaps, uh, we're, we're done with the, we're done with the first chunk there. We've talked about your full-length plays, we've talked about stuff to keep in mind uh, when, when writing your, your opus. Uh, in the conversation that I've been having with Joseph over at crestmeme.blogspot.com, uh, I'm putting a link in the show notes to it. So, uh, and then Joseph, I'm sorry, man. You got to tell me how to pronounce that thing. I just, crest me, me. I just, I don't think that's right. Uh, but it might be. Anyway, um, 
Uh, so he and I have been talking uh, particularly about the evolution of the Harry Osborn character in the Spider-Man movies. And uh, he asked me what I thought about, uh, because earlier I had mentioned that there were some similarities between comic book writing and theatrically, theatrical writing. And he said, yeah, what do, you th- what do you think about that? And I kind of rambled on in, a, in an email about it. Um, but I'm going to talk about this just a little bit. I want to talk about um, time manipulation uh, around a point of action. Uh, and I'm going to talk about this sort of going back to, uh, let's assume that this, this little thing here is 1.16. All right. So, so I want to talk about a couple of things. I'm going to start with television and film. Um, manipulation of time uh, and presentation around a moment of action. Let's say a guy's going to hit another guy. And you're going to film this as part of your story. The tools that you have at your disposal when you're filming it for, for a film or for television, you can slow-mo, you can rewind, you can do some voiceover, you can, you know, cut to the fist, you can cut to the eyes, you can, you can splice it all together very purposefully, you can slow motion the punch, you can come back, you can revisit it, you can do it from different angles. Think about explosions in films and how every time something blows up, they film it from 50 angles and show it and it takes like a minute and a half to get the explosion done when really in real life it would have been 10 seconds. Yeah, that's what film and television can do. I think that uh, comic books and theater are similar in the respect that for those two storytelling mediums, it's not about the moment itself. It's about the leading up to the moment and then dealing with the consequences of the moment. So let's say Spider-Man's knocking out the lizard, right? Because that lizard, he's, a, he's bad and he's back and Spider-Man's got to knock him out. And so there's that thing in Spider-Man, you know, maybe you've got a panel of Spider-Man diving down and then you've got the splash across a couple of pages, the two pages there with Spider-Man doing the, uh, the hook, and he's knocking the spider out. And maybe it's kind of a big drawing, but what you have there is you, you're, not, you're typically not really dwelling on the moment of that action. You're dealing, because you have all this space in the panel, you've got internal monologue from Spider-Man. There's Mary Jane in the background, and she's got her thought bubbles going, and the lizard's looking all kinds of crazy because he's a big lizard, and all this kind of stuff is going on. And sure, but that's not actually the moment. You've got... you Comic books play with time because you have everything that the people are thinking, And those thoughts don't occur exactly in that moment. It is the leading up to, it is the consequences of. And theater is the same way, because for the most part, we're not in theater, we're not rewinding. Uh, Now, you can pause, and you can do some monologues, and you can do some some retrospective stuff on the moment. But generally, unless this is the point of your play, you're not revisiting that same moment over and over again. It's not Rashomon. Um, But... But I would say that that is a consideration, that that is a similarity for theater and comic books, in that we are doing so much with character, whereas film television are dealing with imagery. And yes, comic books are a visual form, and theater is a visual form, but it is the way that we're telling that story. There is the strength of leading up to the moment, and there is, the, there is what the characters have to suffer as the aftermath. And not to say that film doesn't do that, but I think that if theater and comic books tried to do the moment the way that film does, 
I think it would not be as strong a choice to get that story across. Dig? Yeah? Kind of there. Fiction's a little bit different. Fiction is closer to film in this regard, I believe, because fiction, what the hell is fiction? I mean, as far as time manipulation goes, it's pure time and space manipulation. So you can go back and you can do a freaking chapter on what was going through this guy's head at this moment. You can explore it from this other guy's head and you can look at it from this, you know, what, what did the, what, what was the, what was it like from the perspective of the table? You know, you can do all that stuff. You can, you can dwell on that moment. You can truly explore the moment in fiction in a way that you really cannot in any of these other mediums. Um, so it sort of depends on the story that you're telling there as well. Audio drama is a little different. Audio drama, because you don't see it, the choices uh, in your storytelling there, maybe you have someone uh, doing like a narration, maybe you have an internal monologue going on, or what I would maybe think is more interesting is sound effects. Instead of just having someone tell you, let's hear it. Let's, uh, so we hear the two guys struggling and we hear a... You know, we hear a thing, and we're like, oh, oh, something just happened. Something just happened. Um, and I think that that jogs the imagination. That jogs our involvement in it more so. And, and you hear this as well uh, in a lot of playwriting classes. You'll hear your, your instructor or the author of the book say something like, don't tell me, show me. Don't have a character stand there and tell me the exposition. Let's see it somehow. Let's have a strong beginning Let's have some something going on there. Don't just have someone t- stand there and narrate whenever possible. Um, professional wrestling is also a little bit different. It is almost, professional wrestling is almost the opposite of comic books and theater because the way that they, because the moment in professional wrestling is the match, is the battle, is the entire, you know, it's like, it's two minutes, it's a half hour, it's whatever the match is. And really what wrestling does is they, is the buildup, generally speaking, is a little less than the moment itself. Because they can build up everything they can, and there are some storylines that'll be built up for weeks and weeks and months and months, and forever and ever. But if the moment, if the match doesn't live up to that, then it's all done. It's all, it's all over, and the whole thing was a waste. So wrestling's almost the opposite, because the buildup is secondary to the moment itself. And the consequences for professional wrestling, um, generally not uh, followed through with. Yeah, gotta throw that in there. Um, because I, I do believe, and if any of you guys know... Uh, Hey, if you have experience writing for professional wrestling, I'd sure be interested in hearing about that. Um, just, just intrigues me, intrigues me. I, I think it's a very underrated uh, writing outlet. Anyway, anyway, that's probably good for today. Uh, this has been episode 4.3 and episode 1.16 of Theatrically Speaking, almost a playwriting podcast. I am Jonah Knight. You can check me out at jonahofthesea.com. You can become a friend over on MySpace. You can go to Facebook. You can uh, write me an email, Jonah at JonahOfTheSea.com. And I think that's about it. Thank you very much for tuning in this tube, and I will talk to you later. Try to make me to be high class, and I would take
Be more funny.